Today we come to the first Sunday here in Advent, and as we do so, we're coming to the end of John's Gospel. So we've got Christmas and Easter in one. And uh, today we're going to go through John 18, and because of the length, I'm not going to read it out now, so you can actually have a seat. I appreciate you all standing. Normally we stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to go through the text throughout the message And let's come to the Lord now as we seek to hear from him and ask the Spirit to work in our hearts. Let's pray together now. Father in heaven, your word is truth. We ask that you would help us to know the truth about Jesus in this text and that you would strengthen us in our belief as we hear your word. Lord, we know that on our own, we do not understand. On our own, we go astray. And so we ask by the power of your spirit that you would do these things, that you would make your truth known to us. We pray that in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. What is truth? What is truth? It's a question that has been asked for every age, throughout every generation. It's the question that Pilate asked Jesus over 2,000 years ago, and it's a question that people are still asking today. Inherently, as humans, we love to know the truth. We want to know the truth. Just think about the popularity of the crime-solving shows, of Sherlock Holmes, of Agatha Christie novels. These things are popular because we want to know the truth. We want to have the evil people punished and the innocent go free. But when it comes to Jesus, somehow our world says that there isn't just a truth about Jesus. That it says that whatever you believe about Jesus, that is your truth and it's equally valid to another person's truth. The problem is, is that this passage debunks that. This passage shows us that knowing the real truth about Jesus matters. And throughout this story, we're going to see the truth that Jesus speaks in contrast to the error of everyone else around Jesus. The truth of Jesus and the error of the people. Because if we believe the truth of Judas and the religious leaders of the first century, we will want Jesus eliminated from our life. But if we believe what Jesus says about himself, we will worship him as our Lord and Savior. So as we go through the text today, the big idea of the text is this. It's, it's the banner over which this whole text is uh, pointing to. It's this. The truth about Jesus is known only by those who hear his voice and who listen to his voice. The truth about Jesus is known only to those who listen to his voice. And as we go through this text, John 18 is split into three scenes, and we're going to enter into each scene in its time. The first scene is in the garden. That's in verses 1 to 11. The second scene is at the high priest's house and headquarters. 
And then the third scene, that, that's in verses 12 to 27. And the third scene is at the governor's headquarters, Pilate's headquarters, in verses 28 to 40. And as we enter into each one of these scenes, we're going to see at least two errors from various people in regards to Jesus, each of which are contrasted with a truth from Jesus himself. You might know that game that youth groups play all the time, two truths and a lie. Well, in this, if you don't know, it's fine. Ask Jared later on. But in this text, we've got the opposite. We've got two errors and a truth. And that's what we're going to see as we go through the story. So let's enter into the story and look at the first scene, which begins in the garden. And there we're going to find the first error that we notice, and it's Judas's tragic decision to betray his master. You'll remember all the way back in chapter 12 when Judas was quite upset when Mary was using this expensive ointment to uh, anoint Jesus' feet. He was mad. He was mad that this waste of money was being wasted upon Jesus. But John tells us it really wasn't about him being concerned about the poor or, or really concerned about the expense. It was because he was Dishonest. He was a thief. He was helping himself to the money bag. And in Mark's gospel, we learn that it's at that point that Judas went to the chief priests and the religious leaders to betray Jesus. And so now his betrayal has come to fruition, and we read about it in verses 1 to 3. So listen, John 18, verses 1 to 3. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who had betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now this may seem like a bit overkill on Judas's part, the, the word band of soldiers there, it's actually like a particular Greek word. It's referring to a large group of Roman soldiers. This group of Roman soldiers is probably part of a cohort. It's probably 200 to 600 soldiers. We don't know for sure, but this is a large group of soldiers with lots of weapons with them. Along with these two to 600 soldiers are these officers of the chief priests and Pharisees. These were the officers, if you remember, that were unsuccessful to arrest Jesus multiple times over the last months and even years. And so Judas, you can imagine him, probably feeling pretty good about himself right now with all these hundreds of soldiers behind him, the temple officers behind him. He comes and approaches Jesus. But immediately, Jesus shows everyone who, in fact, is in charge. Jesus contrasts Judas's error, error with the truth of who he is. So listen to what he says, starting in verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. 
Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave to me, I have lost no one, not one. Well, as this large crowd uh, asked Jesus, they asked Jesus, who are you, who, he, Jesus says, who are you looking for? And he says, I am he. Now in the Greek, I am he is ego me. It is I am. So Jesus was surely saying, yes, it's me. But on a deeper level, he was saying, I am Yahweh, the great I am. I am God. And as he does this, these hundreds of people immediately fall back in worship. It's as if they're not worshiping him. They're worshiping uh, him as, as God, being God. They're, they're falling back because they have to. Not necessarily worshiping Jesus as God, but because he is, in fact, God. And, and when he says, I am, everyone falls back. And you'd think at that point, with this type of major event, if you were a soldier and you were forced back because of seeing this glimpse of God himself, that you were bowing down before God himself, you would, you would think that you would come to Christ on the spot, that this would be a conversion experience. But that's not what happened they didn't believe Jesus' words, no matter how much evidence was right in front of them. And if we look around, the same thing is true today. No matter how much evidence there is about Jesus being the Son of God, the Savior of the world, countless thousands, if not millions, choose to believe Jesus, not to believe Jesus' words. They don't believe that he is the I Am. Well, then we come to the next error here in the garden, which is Peter's error about the nature of Jesus's kingdom. Listen to verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Love how he tells us Malchus's name. It's probably because John actually knew Malchus. And some people could probably go verify with Malchus that his ear that was struck off, Jesus had healed. But every gospel writer records this event, this striking off of the servant's ear. But only John tells us that it was Peter. The other gospel writers say it was another disciple. But we learn that it's Peter. I think this is because John is trying to show us Peter's progression from unbridled passion to denial then in future weeks we'll see to his restoration. But right now we're still in the unbridled passion phase of Peter's life. Because Peter wrongly thinks that he has to fight with everyone, with these weapons to defend Jesus' kingdom, as if Jesus could not fight for himself. He still doesn't understand. He still doesn't understand that Jesus has to die for him and for those who, uh, for the sins of the world, those who would believe in him later on. Peter still thinks that Jesus' kingdom is an earthly one, and he doesn't understand God's plan of salvation. Well, in the midst of this error from Peter, Jesus speaks the truth. He speaks the truth to Peter and then to us in verse 11. It says this, So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. 
Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. You see, Peter wanted instant results. He wanted to fight and win right then and there. But Jesus reminds him of God's plan that all of these events were in fact from the Father. That this cup, this cup of wrath and suffering was from the Father himself. It was the exact plan and purpose of God and Jesus was willing and prepared to obey until it was finished. Well, much like Peter, it's hard for us today to understand suffering. It's hard to understand why evil things happen in this world, is it not? But the greatest suffering the world has ever known, which is the suffering of the perfect Son of God, shows us that God can be trusted even when we don't fully understand, even when we are experience, experiencing unspeakable evil. We can be confident that God is at work. Now, that evil is, is, uh, is what it is. It is evil. The, the Bible speaks to reality, but we can be confident that God is at work, even in the midst of the deepest tragedies and pain that we experience. We need to remember that Jesus was willing to endure this evil, this great injustice, so that we might have life. Well, that brings us to the second scene of the story, which takes place at the house of the high priest. So listen to verse 13. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Now, this section, if you're reading carefully, could be a bit confusing because Annas and Caiaphas are both referred to as the high priest. And so, what is going on here? Well, Annas is the father-in-law of Caiaphas. And Annas was the high priest from AD 6 to 15. We know that from Josephus and other historians. And now, at this point, Caiaphas was technically the high priest. But Annas, much like we have with politicians today, like if you were a former president, you're still called Mr. President. If you're a Speaker of the House and you're no longer in office, you're called Mr. Speaker or Miss Madame Speaker. Uh, that's what's happening here. So here in this section, talking about the high priest, it's really Annas, who was not technically the high priest, it was Caiaphas, but it's, it's talking about Annas here. So most of this interaction was with Annas, not Caiaphas. And with that in mind, we come to the first error of this scene, and it's Peter's error of denying or disowning Jesus. So Peter's threefold denial is sandwiched. There's like a sandwich here that, that John is wanting us to pay attention to. We've got Peter's denial, Peter's denial, and right in the middle, we have Jesus telling the truth. So let's look at Peter's denial first, starting in verse 15. Simon Peter, it says, followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? 
he said, I am not. Listen to the contrast between Jesus's I am and Peter's I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. Now we're going to skip ahead to the other part of the sandwich in verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, again, listen, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Well, if you've been around church for a while, you know the story. You know that Peter denied Jesus three times. It's a dramatic shift, is it not, from the beginning of the story when Jesus and, or when Peter and his zeal went to cut off Malchus's right ear, and now he's denying even knowing Jesus, ever even being around Jesus. It's quite a shift, but it was predicted by Jesus back in uh, chapter 13 where Peter, in his zeal, said to Jesus, I will lay down my life for you, Jesus. And Jesus replied, will you lay down your life for me? Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And here what we see is that Peter denied Jesus even when it wouldn't have costed him very much at all. When a servant girl asked him, she had no standing, she had no position or place, he denied Jesus before her. He denied Jesus when he was surrounded by people where it would cost him something, people who were hostile to Jesus, the soldiers and the others around the fire. And then he denied Jesus even when confronted with the truth, even when someone who saw him in the garden, saw him cut off his cousin's ear or whoever, however he was related to him, said he had seen him, but he denied, no, that, that was not me. Well, in these moments, Peter chose his own temporary comfort over identifying with Jesus. He chose self-protection instead of self-denial. He chose lying over stating the truth. He chose the fear of man over the fear of God. And before we ridicule Peter, not many of us have our biggest failure of our life in public for all to see. But before we ridicule Peter, we need to be honest with ourselves because if we have walked with Jesus for any amount of time, we know that feeling of not standing for Christ. We know those times where we've been in situations where standing for Christ is hard, where it's uncomfortable, and so we hide or we fail to identify him or we just kind of say, well, I want to be silent. I want my actions to speak greater than my words. But we know if we said words about Jesus, it would bring scorn or ridicule or being made fun of for Jesus. We don't speak up because we don't want those things. And so if you are feeling some of that guilt, some of that shame for not standing up for Jesus this morning, I want us to remember, if you are in Christ, your identity is not rooted in your performance. 
Your identity is not rooted in your biggest failure to stand up for Jesus, in your imperfect efforts to follow him. If you know Jesus, take comfort in the fact that his record is now yours. And that record includes what he did starting in verses 19 to 24. Because there, Jesus does the opposite of Peter. He tells the truth while Peter lied. And he stands strong when it's most difficult while Peter folded. And if we're honest, we are always in the position of Peter, not Jesus. So listen to verses 19 to 21. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard what I said to them. They know what I said. We don't know the motives of the high priest fully. We know he wants Jesus dead, but maybe he thinks Jesus will be intimidated in this hostile environment. Well, he, he couldn't be more wrong because Jesus is the most courageous person who ever lived on the face of this earth. He is never afraid of any moment. He tells the high priest, again, most likely Annas here, not Caiaphas, that his teaching, Jesus' teaching, has been in public, not in secret. And I want us to remember that Jesus will never backtrack from anything he said. He never speaks error. So we don't have to uh, wonder about the truth of what Jesus said. It's all truth. What leads to the second error of this section of the text, this scene, and it's the, the, that the religious leaders ridicule of Jesus. Listen to verse 22. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? You see, the high priest was not used to being questioned by fellow Jews. And since Jesus did not respond as was customary for such an important leader, one of the officers close by went and slapped Jesus, probably across the face with an open hand. They did that to ridicule him, to demean him, to shame him. But they don't, the leaders there, they don't even want to consider the truth of Jesus' claims. They're not even wondering, is what Jesus is saying, is it true? Because his claims did not fit their narrative. He did not fit into their box. And that can often be the same case today for those who reject Jesus. Many won't even consider Jesus' claims to be God. Some people reject him because they, he does not fit into their view of what God is like. They don't want to even consider Jesus' claims. Still others don't even want to learn what Jesus said. They're, they could care less about Jesus and his claims. They're ignorant of his teaching. But even for those of us in the church we can develop views about Jesus that aren't really based on how he's revealed himself here in the scriptures. We can develop views about Jesus. I hear this actually quite often as a pastor. 
over the years. Not a, not a ton of hope yet, but over the years. Uh, what well, well, Jesus is like this. What well, well, God is like this. He would never do fill in the blank. And those views are largely sentimental, largely what people hope from Jesus or hope from God, but not shaped by the truth of God's word. And so what we need as Christians, we need to be always refining our understanding of who we think Jesus is according to the inerrant word of God. That's why it's so important, as we talked about last week, that God's word is being flooded into our lives at every turn, every single day, that we are being shaped by God's word. And our understanding of Jesus is coming from there, not coming from some imaginary idea of what or who you think Jesus is. Well, to refute that error from the religious leaders, Jesus presents the truth, which is that he has done nothing wrong. He proclaims his innocence. So listen to verse 23 and 24. Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Friends, I want us to be reminded again today that never once did Jesus sin. Never once did he speak something out of turn. He never once misspoke. He never had to take a word back. His motives were always pure. There is no fault that you can find with Jesus. And Annas could not find a fault with Jesus either. And so he kind of kicks the can down the road. And he says, well, okay, we're just going to send you to my son-in-law, who's the high priest. And he continues this kangaroo court over there. But as we, before we get into the next section, this scene at the high priest's house should show us the two realities of life. It should show us the truth and beauty in innocence of the Holy Son of God, of Jesus Christ. And it should show us the uh, self-protection, the deceit, the ugliness of the human heart. And the question is, whose side are you on today? Are you on Jesus' side or are you on the side of the world and of human beings apart from God? Jesus endured all of this so that we might believe in him. It's amazing love. Well, that brings us now to the third and final scene of the story. We're leaving the garden, and now we're going to the governor's headquarters, Pilate's headquarters, uh, there in verses 28 to 40. Now, to sum up, Jesus has been um, betrayed by one of those closest to him, to Judas, one who has had the... Uh, ability to keep the money. He was a trusted fellow. Uh, he was a disciple of Jesus. And now he's been disowned by the leaders of his dis disciples, Peter, kind of the spokesperson. And he's been ridiculed by the leaders of his own people, the, the Jewish people. And now he's about to stand before the top government authority in that area, Pontius Pilate. Uh, you'll notice John's account here skips whatever happened in Caiaphas's house. You can read about that in the other gospel accounts, but uh, he kind of just skips that whole moment, and he picks it up as they head to Pilate. And by now, this interrogation has been going on all night long. 
It's been an all-night interrogation, and the text says it's morning. And the word for morning there, it's likely between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. These people are exhausted by now. Uh, Roman officials at this time started to work uh, at 6 a.m. And so Jesus apparently is at the top of the docket. He somehow rose to the top in Pilate's order of business for the day, probably at 6 a.m., and they bring him, <coughs> uh, Jesus, to Pilate. It says this in verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. You notice how the Jewish leaders are more concerned about being defiled so they can't eat the Passover than they are about handing over the one to whom the Passover points. It's a deep irony that John points out. I love how D.A. Carson puts it. He says, the Jews take elaborate precautions to avoid ritual contamination in order to eat the Passover. And at the very time, they were manipulating the judicial system to serve the, uh, to serve the death of him who alone is the true Passover. The spiritual blindness is shocking. Well, now in verse 29, we encounter the next error of this section, and it's the false accusation of uh, Jesus. Listen to it. So verse 29, So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word Jesus had spoken to show what kind of death he was going to die. Well, here it becomes clear that the Jewish leaders have no case whatsoever. They are, uh, this is a, a straw man argument. They don't have evidence. When pressed, they say, of course, well, of course he's doing evil. But they fail to produce any kind of evidence. And then they play their hand. They're showing what they really want is to kill Jesus. You see, some years before, the Romans had taken away the Jews' ability to kill prisoners, to execute uh, capital punishment. So they know they have to come to Pilate in order to kill Jesus. They're showing that's what we want. We want him dead. They don't want a legitimate trial. They just want Jesus dead. Well, in contrast to the error of these false accusations, we have the next truth from Jesus, which is that his kingdom is not of this world. Listen again, starting in verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world, not from this world. Then Pilate said to them, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose, I was born. 
And for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? That's how we began the message. Well, Jesus here tells the truth. He tells the truth that he is a king, but his kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. The truth is that he is the king of all kings, and his kingdom is one that will never end. Friends, Jesus did not come to give us some kind of some nice self-help teachings so that we might have a nice, comfortable life. That is not why Jesus came. He came into the world so that the world would know the truth about him as king over all. He came so that he might destroy sin and death, that he might rescue us, free us from the sin that we are in bondage to, of which we will be punished forever if it were not freed of. And he came to rule in our hearts. And so the question is, how do you relate to Jesus? That is, do you live your life as if he is a mighty king, worthy of worship and love and, and your obedience? Or do you, on a practical level, do your actions show that you think of Jesus as a bit of a pushover? Someone who will bend to your wishes. Someone who will affirm whatever your version of the truth is. Friends, Jesus is a mighty king. We can't make up truth about him. He tells us the truth right here in his word. Jesus says, whoever is of the truth listens to his voice. That is, anyone who believes in Jesus that he is the savior of the world, that he is who he said he is, who is trusted in him alone for salvation, that one listens to Jesus' voice. In John 10, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. And so today, if you are not responding to Jesus as your master, as your savior, as a great king, you may want to reconsider whether you are really of the truth. The only way to become one who is of the truth is by putting your trust in him, by surrendering your will for his, your life for his. And so if you have not done that yet, I know we have some visitors today, if you have not put your trust in Christ for salvation, do that today. His arms are open wide for you. Well, after Jesus declares this truth. It's a Gentile ruler, ironically, who speaks the truth in verse 38. It says, after he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, this is Pilate, I find no guilt in him. How ironic. Jesus is declared innocent by a pagan Gentile king, uh, ruler, Pilate. He's done nothing wrong. It's pretty clear to someone who does this kind of thing for a living. What well, leads us to the next error of the section in this scene, it's that the Jews uh, are picking a criminal over Jesus. Listen to verse 39 and 40. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. As we mentioned earlier, John loves irony. 
He's got it throughout the whole gospel. A scholar F.S. Bruce says this, there's no little irony in the fact that the man whose name, whose, the man whose release was granted had been convicted of the same kind of offense as that with which Jesus was now <clears throat> charged. How ironic that the people who would be willing to release a convicted robber, an insurrectionist, one who is guilty of murder, that we could read about that in the other gospel accounts, and that in his place he wanted to condemn, they wanted to condemn the holy, innocent Son of God. It's tragic in the irony. And the truth from Jesus in this error is that he was willingly going to be falsely accused and arrested. He could have called 12 legions of angels down, he said, if he wanted to. He could have got out of the situation, but he willingly was falsely accused and arrested. He willingly was treated as a criminal so that he might bear our punishment. He, the great I am, the Savior of the world, taken into custody, condemned to die while the real criminal goes free. And that, my friends, is the heart of the gospel. Like Barabbas, the verdict is in for all of us. We are all guilty before a holy God. Like Peter, we have denied Jesus. Like the Jewish leaders, we fail to see the true identity of Jesus on our own strength. And therefore, the verdict for all of us, according to the Bible, is, sin, uh, is uh, death and eternal punishment for our sin. But Jesus came and took our place. It's the, it's the reason why Christmas is so meaningful, that God would come to earth to die for us. He suffered incredible injustice for us and ultimately he took God's punishment for our sin upon himself so that we might go free and have eternal life. So as we close, I want you to consider whose side you are on. What I mean by that is when it comes to living your life on an everyday basis, whose voice are you listening to? Are you listening to the voice of Jesus, which is the voice of truth? Or are you listening to the voice of this world? Or maybe your own voice, which may or may not be true. Whose kingdom are you fighting for? Today's text laid it, lays it out very clearly. There's two sides. There's the sides of truth, and there's the side of error. And only Jesus can lead us to the side of truth, because he himself is the truth. In the contrast to the errors and lies and deceptions all around us, even within us, Jesus always tells us the truth. The truth about ourself and the truth about himself and about the world. And he is calling us to believe in him, to believe that he is God, that his words are true and right, and that he is a king whose kingdom is not of this world. So I'll end with the same question that I began with. What is truth? We've seen that Jesus is truth. And those who listen to his voice will never be put to shame. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, 
as we remember this, what is a familiar story to many of us, I pray that you, by your Spirit, would help us to see clearly the truth of who Jesus is and the error that we have often within ourselves, that the, the error that the world, the lies the world tells us. Lord, I pray we would embrace what you have said about yourself and about the world. Lord, I pray that if there are some here that are trying to make up their own truth or maybe living in such a way that they're rationalizing the truth of what your word says, that you would bring them back to you today, that they would admit and confess even as we come to the table here in a moment, they would confess that they need you, they need a savior, that you are truth. Lord, we pray that you would do your mighty work among us. In the name of Jesus, amen.